This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Thursday, April 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm here to help you with your Mueller report angst. I think we need to raise the bar on the question of will Bill Barr bar more than what we know so far. If he does, will the Attorney General Bill Barr be disbarred? No, but he might be dis-Attorney Generaled. You know what I'm saying? Because dissing the Attorney General, that is what Trump does. Look, I've had my fun with these words, word play. I don't even know if it's play. Just banter, bear baiting the words. I believe you have suffered enough, so let me get to the nub of my argument. I do think the Mueller report is going to come out. Maybe there will be more redactions than are necessary, but some are necessary. And I am not saying don't worry. I am not advising Representative Gerald Nadler to not push for this. I am not saying that the White House won't try to do everything it can to suppress it. But I don't think it can do too much to ultimately keep it from your eyes because of these incontrovertible facts. One, Bob Mueller is free to testify about what he found. Two, that aforementioned fact is known by Barr and Donald Trump. Well, does Donald Trump ever really know anything? If they concoct the right visual, he can be made to know it. So suppression efforts only work for as long as the gap between what you redact and what Mueller says doesn't make you look bad if you're the White House. Mueller is not in this to have his report be ignored, to have his conclusions misstated, to have his work go suppressed. And he has an avenue to prevent those things from happening. And all actors are aware of what the other ones know. It's a classic case of game theory. And it seems to me that the only conclusion of the game is that most of the Mueller report gets out. I don't know when. I don't know how much. Smarter people than I am, like Tim O'Brien at Bloomberg or Stephen Bates at Lawfare, say it can be a long, drawn-out fight. I'm skeptical of how long, but I defer to their expertise. I just don't see how it all ends in secrecy forever. And all the concern over Trump muddying the waters or setting the tone or trying to confuse us as to what is signal and what is noise. Yeah, of course he's trying to do that but they're not working or the extent to which they are working doesn't really matter in the long run. If the long run is, let's get our eyes on the Mueller report. I mean, Trump can go around claiming full exoneration in direct contradiction of the conclusions. But you know, if page after page is redacted, it won't seem like an exoneration. It will seem like obfuscation. Okay, all that said, I read a report in the New York Times today And I'm a little miffed. I don't know, the reporting, I'm not exactly sure what the reporting was saying. It was couched in a lot of sources close to and some say. But it seems like there are people on the Mueller team who are essentially saying, we object to Bill Barr issuing a finding of no coordination. But also at the same time, you're the guys who consciously left that decision up to Attorney General Barr. It seems that Mueller or Team Mueller didn't want that conclusion to be reached, well, you were some of the few people on earth who could have done something about that. I mean, if that's what's really going on, Mueller or Team Mueller is saying something like, look, it it is really for someone else to decide the criminality of this because, you know, enter Barr and Rosenstein, we decided not criminal. What? Oh, we didn't think that would be your conclusion. Look, I don't know if my little 
playlet is accurate. Because here's the lead of the New York Times story. Some of Robert S. Mueller III's investigators have told associates that Attorney General William P. Barr failed to adequately portray the findings of their inquiry and that they were more troubling for President Trump than Mr. Barr indicated, according to government officials and others familiar with their simmering frustrations. (laughs) Familiar with their simmering frustrations. You could have gone with, set a source close to the Tsuris. Familiar with their simmering frustrations. Yeah, you and me, brother man. The only difference is that one of us got to write the report and the rest of us have to depend on the firm but respectful demands of Jerry Nadler and the good graces of Bill Barr. On the show today, I spiel about the dumb criticism attached to all the Democratic candidates. Oh, it's not one criticism. They all have their own dumb criticism, but I'm telling you, it is not worth your time. But first, a new collection of profiles of sports icons, Pat Riley, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, some lesser known figures. Okay, that sounds good, but here's the thing that makes them great. It's the author, Wright Thompson, the Ted Williams of sports writing. For over a decade, he's written for ESPN, and his long stories are an event when they come out. And now, the collection of a few of them are out in print, and we're ready for an interview. Wright Thompson, up next. For two decades, Wright Thompson has been, I don't know, the preeminent, that sounds like one of the phrases that normal people don't use, but just the best at writing about a character attached to the world of sports in a way that takes its time, but also rewards you for giving of your time. A collection of his work is out. It's called The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories, and Other Serious Business. Wright Thompson, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, man, my pleasure. So I I think I know the answer to this. Uh, I I think it was Bill Simmons. I was listening to someone who raised the good practical point. Why would I put out a collection of work? People could just access it and you can. Is the answer just the way you revere sports writing and and maybe the hope that some kid will see all this stuff collected like you did some great sports writer and be a little inspired? I think it's a couple of things. One, there's certainly the hope of that, that it lives on a bookshelf and has an idea implicit in it that is kept alive by its physical presence. But also, man, so I had to read the thing to do the book on tape. Right. Which was a long four days. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is they fit together and talk to each other in a way that is totally surprising to me that I absolutely didn't intend. Mm -hmm. It it becomes interesting because there is an arc to them when read as a whole. And this is what, like maybe 10% of your output um, of of the big, you know, takeout pieces that you've done for just ESPN? Yeah, if that. that. I mean, it's the tip of the iceberg. It was interesting because I got it down to like 30. I mean, they're sort of like your kids. You both love them and hate them, you know? And so I just couldn't decide. I was way too close to it. And Scott Moyers at Penguin really was, I was like, you're going to need to do this because like I can't, I'm, you know, there's no way that, you know, I'm going to be able to cut Johnny Manziel. Right. Or Ichiro. Right. You know, and so it was interesting. And uh, he's much smarter than I am. And I think that's one of the reasons why it works both as, you know, individual stories, but there really is a connective tissue that's cool. The, so, so you love 
writing about icons. We love reading about icons, about legends. But if I may suggest a reason why Manziel, which just in a sentence by sentence way, and I remember that piece, it's not in the book. Maybe a reason that's not in there is that his story's not done. And so you capture a slice of it. But when you put forward the Michael Jordan story and the Pat Riley story, and maybe these guys who are in the twilight of their professional lives, it's a little bit different than talking about Johnny Manziel. Well, it's also that the central complication of Pat Riley's life is not changing. Yes. <laughs> and and he's not changing. And that's that's true for all of these guys. I mean, like Michael Jordan is not going to suddenly stop being Michael Jordan. It's so interesting how aware he is, though, of like the idea that Mike Jordan from Wilmington, North Carolina is dead yeah. and that Michael Jordan killed him. I mean, he's like he's hyper self-aware of that fact that's impressive and sort of staggering up close because he has spent considerable amount of time in brain waves on trying to understand what it means to have been Michael Jordan. Yeah, and I think you use the word icon, and I think that's a real purposeful word because with the Muhammad Ali story, the conceit of which is to find the one guy who fought Muhammad Ali when he was Cassius Clay, and he's been lost to history and to you, it absolutely is iconography and, try, and trying to find the quest for those pieces of the true cross. Well, that's what you're looking for through people. So uh, Sweet Jimmy Robinson? Is sweet, sweet Jimmy. So Muhammad Ali fought 50 people. And there's this guy, this lunatic car salesman in New Hampshire who wanted an autograph of all 50 people. And so he started collecting them. You know, some of them are very, very easy. He got to about 40. They started getting hard. He was buying passports from relatives and stuff. Yeah. And he got to 49. And one guy had fallen off the face of the earth. And his name was Jim Robinson. They called him Sweet Jimmy. And the story is the quest to find him and... It's so interesting because it really becomes about the idea of identity. Yeah. And like Jeff Perlman, who write, used to write for Sports Illustrated, uh, writes books now, said one time, like, he knew he needed to stop covering baseball when people were like, we've made history. And he's like, no, you didn't. They're going to do it again <laughs> next year. You know what I mean? Yeah. You didn't make history. And you think that if you step into a ring with Muhammad Ali, if nothing else, it grants you some sort of immortality. And it doesn't. And that's what that story to me is about. It's a quest to find a missing boxer, but it really is sort of a meditation on what it means to exist and what awaits all of us. It's also, I read it as a meta-journalism story in that there's a lot of quest and seeking going on. But I always found as a journalist, if you said to me, Mike, get this senator on the phone, that'd be easy. If you said to me, Mike, get a guy from Kansas who exemplifies, I don't know, the tariff issue, it'd be really impossible. And then if there was a mystery to it, it would be so hard. And the people we remember, the icons we remember, as much as we don't even remember them correctly, it's sometimes the people who touch these icons that are totally erased. And you can't, like, those stories have to find you. Well, that one really did, right? Didn't it start before you were at ESPN? When did? When was the first time you heard from that New Hampshire car salesman? I guy? was in the newsroom at the Kansas City Star, and he called me. So this was what year? Oh, 203. And that story runs in uh, the December 09 edition. Yeah, yeah. And it started in 2002. And it was really weird because most of the reporting was in Overtown, which is a really bad neighborhood. But the, you know, the ESPN Disney approved hotel at the time was the Shore Club on South Beach. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, where the room service is Nobu. And so every day I was leaving this hotel 
and then driving to Overtown, spending all day, and then driving back. And so, like, that ended up... So, like, when you rented the car, they were like, oh, sir, we've upgraded you. No, 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 no. Yeah, like... not do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a 87 Cutlass? (laughs) But... uh, it, it, that was a wild experience. I mean, I'm in, you know, in the morgue looking at dead bodies. It was, uh, it really did become, even for me, trying to figure out at what point are you remembered? And, you know, it's just fascinating to me to think about. Like, in a thousand years, will anyone know who Muhammad Ali is, much less Sweet Jimmy? Yeah, there's a chance. I don't know. A thousand's a long timeline. And then it gets, you get into how much of history is recorded. But also, for a couple decades, he impressed himself upon history in a way that few other people on this planet Which is really has. amazing. And, like, because, you know, we, there's this whole theory that athletes think they're famous and most of them aren't. Yeah. I mean, the number of people who my mother would recognize right. is very small. And, I mean, you know, Ali was for the entire time he was alive the most famous athlete in the world. I mean, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, and, you know, Mother Teresa are probably the three most famous people on the planet. Yeah, and Tiger Woods, I guess, for a while, who you also profiled. And you caught him at a really interesting time. Oh, at the most interesting time. And and that story started out as almost a thought experiment, which is I'm going to make an Excel spreadsheet, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to try to account for every single day of his life between the death of Earl Woods and his wife attacking him with that golf club. Yeah. Or allegedly attacking him with that golf club. And that's basically what I attempted to do was just to day by day figure out what he was doing and start to look for the patterns that other people hadn't seen. So how much uh, how much was just accounted for in the press? Someone publicly? An, An incredible amount. Yeah. So that alone tells you a lot. And, and then you're and also, also, by the way, the stuff in the press maybe is not the most important stuff because they're not going to write about, you know, his affair with the Waffle House waitress in the press. Oh, and also, so it was a Perkins, and that becomes <laughs> funny because I have a friend who I can't name for obvious reasons uh, who's a pretty big rock star, so who has to check into hotels uh-huh. under an assumed name. And the assumed name he uses is Orlando Perkins because <laughs> he's a huge sports nut. <laughs> It's also a very plausible name. It is. And uh, yeah, yeah. his his previous one that he used, which was ridiculous, was uh, Kanye Twitty. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is a good one. But Orlando Perkins just, I mean, it's so funny to go into hotel like, is Orlando Perkins here? And they're like, oh, yes, he's on Sport Team. How articulate do you want your subjects to be? I want them to be self-aware. Mm-hmm. Articulate. We can get to articulate. Some Sometimes when people ask me, you know, if they're athletes who want to know why they should cooperate or why are you doing this, Yeah. you know, my answer a lot of times is like, look, I didn't invent this and you didn't either. But every generation, they're three or four of you and they're 20 or 30 of me. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's and, meet and up. Let's yeah. just like this is what happens. So <laughs> yeah. you can not want it to happen, but that's like bitching at the clouds about rain. It's just something that happens. And so, you know, I don't know why the – the world is hungry to know about you, but it is. And when you're gone and I'm gone, there'll be somebody like you and there'll be somebody like me coming to ask them questions. So let's not let's not get into some sort of huge existential debate about why journalism exists. Did has an athlete or a sub a profile subject ever been really aware of Richard Ben Kramer or um, Gay Talese writing about Joe DiMaggio or the tradition of the great sports profile that kind of defines a person? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Like. Uh, I mean, Theo Epstein, who I wrote about. Well, he's uh, a genius, and his grandparent, granduncles wrote Casablanca. But he knew what was happening. Yeah, And yeah. that was really interesting. I mean, you know, to a lesser degree, uh, you know, there's a story in there about Katrina, and I was interviewing a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning 
columnist for the newspaper there who I used to work with named Chris Rose. Yeah. But it was very weird because he had done it enough to know exactly what I was writing down and why I was writing it down. And, you know, like, so that was a, must have been a profoundly weird experience for him because, I mean, he knew exactly what I was doing. And yeah, I, I, I always just remember him looking sort of like, how did I end up on the other side of this? This sucks. Um, I want to go back and ask you this. What is that Gary Smith quote it's, that I've heard you talk about? Uh, it is, what is the central complication of someone's life and how on a daily basis do they go about solving it? And that is shot through the book and shot through your work. And Gary Smith, to my mind, is, is the, the best at it, what you he's do. He's the greatest ever, for yes. sure. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You're, you're, on the, you're on Mount Rushmore, right? But Gary I, Smith is up there. I yeah. got I got, uh, I got a email from Gary today. Yeah. And he's just like, ordered mine today. That's and awesome. just like, gulp. <laughs> The complication, the central complication, and what... So, I had a psychiatrist there yesterday. She wrote a really interesting book, and she's also a journalist. And what I was asking her was, I'm a journalist, and I totally get wanting to figure out a person and see what makes them tick and put them on the page. She has something else inside her that also wants to help them change. And I don't 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 have that. that. I don't have that either. But has anyone who's been a profile subject gotten back to you and told you that you made them see things about themselves that they hadn't seen? Yes, Uh, several. Uh, And I don't want to name them because that feels very personal and also feel that if you let me that far into your life, there needs to be an understanding that I'm going to be a one and done guy. Uh-huh. But yeah, I've had I've had people say that they saw themselves. I've had people be very uncomfortable. Uh you know, I've had stories come up in people's marriage counseling. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh which is interesting. And and usually the spouse says that is true. See, I told yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So that tells you something. For some reason, to be great at a sport do you have to have something off or wrong with you or dysfunctional? Does it optimize? Do we select for people who in other walks of life would be seen as, you know, at least partly broken? Well, I think I think high ambition and high achievement, the people are always broken. And I think that you can't – it would be impossible to separate the things we love about Bill Clinton from the things we don't like about Bill Clinton. That's true, and, and I always thought that was true, but then Barack Obama. So far. Who seems quite normal. Who does seem quite normal. Yeah. But no one who wants to be president is normal. That's true. And so, that you know, it lets you know maybe he's just smarter. Then again, the people you're seeking out are maybe people with the rough edges. <laughs> well, and, and I like, I'm fascinated by the way things in our past continue to exert gravitational pull on us now. I'm interested in that. And people, I'm writing about that. I would, if you and I left here and went and got a drink, that's what I would be interested in about you. Yeah, I'm interested in it about myself. That's really interesting to me. Is like, on some level, these stories are all about exploring whether or not there is even such a thing as free will. You know, like, like, do any of us ever really have a choice or about anything? I I tend to think that we do, but not nearly as much as we think we do. It's a good question. Maybe I would say something like, if I show you. Michael Jordan, who is Michael Jordan, the the answer is more that we don't have a choice. He really didn't have a choice to become that guy. Now, there are a lot of choices he could have made, but he wouldn't be the person who Michael Jordan is. The question, too, for all these people that, that, you know, I think remains asked in the ether by the pieces, although not by me in them, which maybe is stupid, but, like, they all want to give back all of these things. Mm -hmm. But gun to their head, 
if you told Michael Jordan you could get rid of all of these things that bring you drama and trauma now, would you take them if you had to trade having been Michael Jordan? Yeah. And I don't think any of them would ever give it back. Yeah. So I think that, like, I think the conflict is interesting. And, you know, I think that when you're crawling around in people's heads, it should never be clean. If you have too clean an arc, you're writing fiction. You know, I mean, like, people are complicated. And multiple things can be true. And I like that in these stories, that it doesn't – you're not trying to sort of beat out everything that doesn't prove the thesis. In fact, you want to be actively proving and disproving something at the same time because we're all both, you know? In the Michael Jordan story, you say the unspoken thread that runs through the criticism is that Jordan didn't understand what was required of a retired athlete. What's the answer? The answer is we want – we want them to get rid of the hard edges that made them great and make themselves cuddly for our consumption and make them appear, you know, stars. They're just yeah. like us. And the point of Wright Thompson is to do exactly the opposite. Tear it down. Mm -hmm. Wright Thompson is the author of The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories, and Other Serious Business. Thanks for coming in, Wright. Absolutely. Thank you. And now the spiel. Seems like I have been thrust or I have thrust myself into the role of defending the Obamacist centrist candidates in the race. Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Biden. But it goes beyond them because every single Democratic candidate has some criticism of them that essentially boils down to, yeah, it's stupid and you shouldn't care. I, I know I'm being too flippant, though it is punchy to say it's stupid and you shouldn't care. Uh, I'm just saying that they're all getting a different piece of criticism that is a poor criticism. It's not accurate. Or if it is accurate, it's just not a big deal. Or if it's a medium deal, it's understandable. The explanation they've given is acceptable. In general, it has no bearing on the job they will do as president. Everyone has some ding that really isn't a glancing blow. Everyone has some weakness that really isn't a weakness. Everyone has some charge to grapple with that is barely something to get exercised over. That's why I say it's stupid and you shouldn't care. But of course, of course, I don't really mean that. I want to be sensitive about this. I'm not fully dismissing all the charges against all these people. And I don't want to deny you as a potential voter your priorities, your ethical codes, the process you use to pick a leader. Please take into account these charges, these overblown, out-of-context not really indicative of a true weakness, charges. Let's go through them. Amy Klobuchar was mean to her staff. She shouldn't have been. It may reveal poor temperament, and we shouldn't reward cruelty. And yet on my care scale, I put it at CareCon 5. It's the least amount of care on the CareCon scale. Well, still caring, maybe a little. Joe Biden made women feel inappropriate. It's funny that he's literally the one who was too touchy and how are the women being described? Oh, they're too touchy. That's not right. Still, it's not a crisis. I talked about this all day yesterday. Also, CareCon 5. Elizabeth Warren claimed a bit more Native American heritage than she may have. CareCon, 
less than five, more than five, however you want to say it, barely gets to CareCon 5. But I am going to come back to Elizabeth Warren in my caveat section. Mike, when did you open a caveat section? Well, Jimmy, the caveat section was actually here for a long time. But over the years, it fell into disfavor and was ignored and eventually walled off behind the cognitive dissonance section right off recrimination aisle. But now we've restaffed it and we're bringing it back. Wow, Mike, that's swell. Sure, Jimmy, but it does come with a caveat. I would hope so. It's that you're fired. You've been stealing fruit roll-ups. Oh, you caught me, Mike. But fruit carpaccio is irresistible. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah, the caveat section. Here's Elizabeth Warren's caveat section. Yes, the whole Native American thing, it's really no big deal. And if you're a progressive or liberal person, I bet you think that it's no big deal that she made some claim to Native American ancestry that might have been a little overblown. So everyone who I know who's definitely voting Democrat has that opinion. But all the Democrat-leaning people, but not necessarily locked in, and I talk to these people, I'm not talking about the conservatives who just want Democrats to bloody themselves. I talk to them too, but I'm talking about friends and relatives who maybe voted for a Bush or two or John McCain. No, not Trump. I don't really have friends who once voted for a Democrat and might vote for a Democrat, but voted for Trump. I have friends who voted for Trump or I know people who voted for Trump. Did put a little strain on the friendship. But what I'm saying is of my personal survey of people I know who could very well and maybe even likely be persuaded to vote Democrat, they all think the Elizabeth Warren thing is kind of a big deal. I don't know if they think it's disqualifying. They all make more of a big deal about it than every liberal progressive I know. Just putting it out there, and that's why it's in the caveat section. All right, let's move on. Bernie Sanders, his stupid thing that you shouldn't worry about, that he calls himself a socialist. Who cares? But I'm going to meet you in the caveat section now. You ready for this one? Here's the caveat. It's that he is a socialist. So smearing him with the label is one thing. Everyone's going to get smeared with the label. But what you do against Bernie Sanders is you just lay out his agenda or allow him to. And then a lot of Americans are going to say, my tax bill's going to be what? And he can say, no, no, no. You'll save a lot on the back end. And they're still going to say, what? That's the caveat. Kamala Harris Oh, yeah. Here's her thing. When she was a prosecutor, she apparently, you ready for this, prosecuted people. And a lot of the time when she was prosecuting people, she she basically treated them like criminals. I know, right? CareCon 5 on that one, too. Beto O'Rourke. I can't quite put my finger on the bullshit criticism of this guy. See, I think it's that he's mostly a style candidate. And since the critiques of him are also critiques of style... I think they're more or less apt. They're at least less rooted in the real. I mean, here's a guy who'll uh, stand on a coffee counter before he'll take a stand on the issues. I'm not going to give him a CareCon rating. And now we get to Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So here's one criticism. Yeah, he may be gay, but is he really gay? I got the answer. The answer is yes. I know because I asked him and he told me. Also, his husband says so. So... He's gay. He's certainly gay. But is he the right amount of gay? But what really is the right amount of gay? Let's take the village people. You got the policeman, the army man, the construction worker, the Native American, the cowboy, and the leather man. Pete Buttigieg was literally one of them, right? He served, served as a soldier. He oversaw two of them as mayor. And you will be happy to note, I'm not making the obvious Elizabeth Warren joke about running against the fourth of them. He's not the Leatherman. I think that's what we're saying with the gay enough thing. He's not the Leatherman. I think we could move on from that. Now, the other thing about Pete Buttigieg 
is that it was revealed in a speech four years ago, a state of the city of South Bend address, he used the three words, all lives matter, in a row. He also spoke for, I counted, 13 paragraphs about racism, diversity, policing, race and diversity, police and diversity, police and race, all that stuff. And also, and I think this is, you know, notable, his explanation is I didn't realize back then uh, that all lives matter was what it's become, which is sort of fighting words and an insensitive rebuke to Black Lives Matter. And I believe him. I absolutely believe him. Because if you look at when he made the speech, it was March in 2015. And at that point, it wasn't so common to say all lives matter as a stupid rebuttal a la Sean Hannity. I mean, back in the summer, in July of 2015, Martin O'Malley was running for president, and he said, all lives matter to a crowd of mostly African-Americans, and he got some brushback. But it tells you that all lives matter as a go-to insensitive statement about Black Lives Matter was not in the air. Otherwise, Martin O'Malley, who wanted to appeal to his audience of African-Americans, wouldn't have said it. In writing up that offense, Jamel Bowie, who was writing for Slate at the time, said, quote, It's as if someone responded to an annual breast cancer drive with breast cancer matters, prostate cancer matters, all cancer matters. It sounds like a dismissal. Indeed, it does. But the reason I quote Jamel is to point out he needed to clarify that in the piece written in July 2015. What I'm saying is all lives matter had less of a meaning and less of a charge then as it does now. Another example of this. In June of 2015, Hillary Clinton was speaking before the African-American congregants at the Christ the King United Church of Christ in Florissant, Missouri. Here's what she said. Years later, when I was old enough to understand, I asked her, what kept you going? Her answer was very simple. Kindness along the way from someone who believed she mattered. All lives matter. And for her... Notice, it got applause from those in attendance, but it also got pushed back online. And that was three months after Pete Buttigieg said all lives matter as he addressed tension facing his police department. It was not a response to a question if black lives matter, which he has affirmed many times, including yesterday, in an address to the National Action Network. When we assert what should go without saying, but in these times must be said clearly, and again, and again, that black lives matter. So back to that 2015 State of the City address. I want to quote from some of the speech leading up to the phrase all lives matter. I don't have a recording of it, but here's what he said. There is no escaping the fact that The most grievous injustices experienced by minorities in American history were often served at the hands of police officers. And every police officer today, even the most forward-thinking among them, even police officers who are themselves African-American, is forced to deal with the fact that even if they had nothing personally to do with those injustices, the uniform did. And so for all the good reasons that our men and women have to be proud of that uniform and the service and sacrifice it represents, it also remains the case that the uniform has a lot to overcome. I think that's a pretty strong statement, and I think it would please anyone with a commitment to criminal justice. And I think the three words that also appear in that speech are pretty weak evidence of Pete Buttigieg's imperfection on the issue. I think we media activists, people who earnestly want a president worthy of that title, in a quest 
to uproot the current president, a man who deals in distractions and statements unmoored from their context, can all do better than falling into those exact bad habits ourselves. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist following the Orlando Perkins model of hotel check-in. Pierre checks into hotels as Jackson P.F. Chang's and Daniel goes by Laredo Chipotle. TJ Raphael enjoys the construction worker, the cowboy, the soldier, brainy, hefty, papa, and smurfette. I got your trivia question this week. It's based on Wright Thompson. Here's, here's the game. And this is uh, your trivia question, which will be answered in the GIST newsletter. Slate.com slash GIST news. Okay, I'm going to read you the first sentence of a Wright Thompson piece. You tell me, you could look this up, why cheat? You tell me who Wright Thompson is referring to. Lead. Ten years ago, blank, sat in his boyhood home across from his father's body, waiting on the men from the funeral home to arrive and carry blank away. I got two more for you. In the imagination of guidebook writers who see places as they should be, but rarely as they are, there is a passionate love affair between the city of Rosario and its famous progeny, global soccer star, blank. And here's the last one. Who was this about? We're driving to Costco to buy beer for a horse. Not just any beer, it has to be Guinness. The gist. We always check in as Juno Cheesecake Factory, according to a source close to the hotel staff's poached vexation. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.